as we go to the word and as is fitting for this message especially, let's pray. Father, it's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to misunderstand. We just pray that in your kindness, with all of your joy and goodness and blessing your people, that you would open our eyes and ears and our hearts to the truth of your word, that we would find joy and blessing in it, and that we would leave praising you because of what we've learned, that we would be committed to all that we have been instructed in, and that we would put it into practice and find the goodness of your commands. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this message, The First Priority in God's Household. The first priority in God's household. And I've already mentioned, and in fact, I'll probably mention it almost every week, that Paul writes this letter, and he very clearly says his reason for writing is so that we would know how to behave in the household of God. That's found in chapter 3, verse 15. And many of the things that he says in this book are pretty straightforward and easy to understand. Like later in this book, he's going to talk about how critical it is for pastors in particular to be devoted to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. In fact, he says it's so important. He says, by doing this, this is in chapter 4, keeping a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, you will save yourself and your hearers. God wants his people to be devoted to his word, to be devoted to truth, to knowing what he has said and what he has written. And so when Paul says, first of all, my expectation would actually be, he would say, be a preaching church. Be a church where the word is proclaimed faithfully and in great care and detail and accuracy. And that is not what he says. So I want to pause for a moment and think about, maybe you order your household differently than how I order my household. Uh, when Laura and I started having kids, we didn't put like a Ten Commandments of the Martin household up. We, we kind of made some stuff up on the fly. I've mentioned in the past, one of the first hard and fast rules of our household was actually no cars on the table. Uh, Isaac was about 18 months old. That might sound like, like, why? Like, there are so many other things that are more important. We had bed bugs, and they sprayed constantly. So there was poison on the floor, and we didn't want poison on the table. So simple, straightforward rule, no cars on the table. Pretty good rule. Not, not a lot of conflict has come from that. They do need regular reminders. We've stuck with it, even though by the grace of God, we've not had bed bugs in over five years. We don't miss them at all. But there are other rules of the Martin household. So, so how do we organize our house? Uh, another one of the ones that's kind of goofy uh, and needs a little bit of explanation, don't lick mom. <laughs> don't lick mom. You might be like, why? Like, honestly, as we were preparing to be parents, this never came up in our conversations. We never thought this would be an issue. But if you have little children that like to pretend to be puppy dogs... This is not surprising, and it's gross. So we have been very clear about this. There's some ways that we order our household. But then there are more serious things, like one of the most important things that applies to dad, that applies to mom, that applies to the kids, is when you are wrong, you say sorry. 
And there are some details to how you say sorry. We kind of insist that you don't look at the floor while you do it, but that instead you look the person that you've heard in the eye and say, you know, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And I don't mind if you're a little bit quiet when you say it, but I also won't allow you to mumble because an apology should be clear. It should be easy to understand. So I understand if you're feeling sad and I don't want you to shout it, but at the same time, I want you to be able to speak it in a way that can be heard. So there are ways that we order our household and that would maybe be one of the most important because more than teaching my kids this is what you do if you want to be happy and, and, and have a good life and follow these rules. More than teaching them how to follow the rules, I know that they're going to break the rules and I know that they're going to need forgiveness. And the thing that I want my kids to know more than anything else is that they have a heavenly father who is rich in mercy who always forgives. So a first order of importance in the Martin household is being able to say sorry when you're wrong and receive that encouraging love and forgiveness. No matter if you've offended mom or dad, or if you've offended your sister or your brother, a first order of importance is learning grace in my household. And I think it would be natural to expect that a first order of importance in God's household would probably be the same lesson, Right? but that's actually not his first order of importance. So maybe at this point you're wondering, what is it? And the first order of importance is a prayer for peace. And I want you to pay attention to this. We're gonna go through three points this morning. And the first one is the first priority in God's household is corporate prayer. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And Paul says this, first of all, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. As we talked about this as our group, one of the questions that came up is, what good does prayer do? And there is a true statement that at first I thought it was really popular, and then I went for a walk with Dave Padgett this past week, and I gave him the statement, and he goes, I don't think that's popular, I've never heard that. So now I have no idea. Uh, maybe this is something you've heard, maybe this is not, but I want to ask you, what does prayer do? Do. And there are two competing statements here. One of them is prayer changes you, the person praying, not you, the person prayed for, but prayer changes you. And when someone says this, usually what they mean is, you know, I was asking God for this thing, fill in the blank, whatever the thing might be. And perhaps over such a long time, God said no, or he said, wait. And the longer you prayed for it, perhaps you did change. You realized that the thing that you were asking for was something that you were not asking for for right reasons. Or maybe it wasn't actually wise at all. There's a, there's a country song. I almost called it an old country song, but it's not that old. Uh, it's just a song that I remember hearing as a kid. One of God's greatest gifts is unanswered prayers. Garth, is that Garth Brooks? 
See, I needed you telling me Harry Potter stuff last week, but, but now, now you're here to help me with country music, which is kind of a little outside my area of expertise. So there's that attitude that as you ask for things, sometimes God says no, and sometimes the biggest thing that changes is your heart, and maybe you do grow. And, and I'm not minimizing that. That is true. That is true. Sometimes as you pray, God changes your heart and leads you to a place where you trust him in a deeper way, even as he tells you no. But the, the other statement that kind of competes with that is prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. So it's not you that changes it's life. Maybe God says yes to whatever it is you're asking. And the point of that statement is that prayer makes a tangible difference. And I would say the entire Bible actually points more to the second truth than to the first truth. It is true. Sometimes God tells you no. It is true. The more you spend time with your father in prayer, the more you're going to know his love and you will be changed. I'm not denying that, but most of the Bible demonstrates that God loves to answer prayers. So I want to give you a couple, couple examples, a couple illustrations. Some of the most stunning and shocking verses of all the Bible are in Exodus, as Moses, a man of God who has been called to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, prays. And several times throughout the book of Exodus, we read these stunning words. And God listened to Moses' prayer. God listened to Moses' prayer and does what Moses asked him to do. One example of many is as the plagues are being poured out in judgment on Egypt and God is showing his power over evil idolatry and oppression, at one point, Pharaoh asks Moses, hey, I can't take it. I need God to relent. I, like, we're suffering. I'll do whatever you say. Just make this go away. And Moses says to Pharaoh, okay, I know you don't mean it yet, but I'm going to go pray for you. And when I pray, you'll know that I speak for God because God's going to answer my prayer. And the book of Exodus says, and God listened to the prayer of Moses. And the plague is gone like that. He does it again when the people of Israel sin, and God says, I'm going to pour out my judgment on the people of Israel. And Moses fasts and prays and says, God, have mercy on them. Remember your promises. And again, it says, God listened to the prayer of Moses. And the thing that changed is before Moses prays, God says, I'm going to pour out my judgment on my people. It's a really big thing. And after Moses prays, God says, all right, I'm going to extend mercy on my people. You know what didn't change in that prayer is Moses. Think about it for a second. If Moses is praying, God, have mercy on your people, and God says, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not going to do it, and Moses says, you know, prayer changes you. And Moses would go, you know what, God, go ahead, wipe him out. Like, that, that's not how the prayer worked. Prayer did not change Moses. Prayer changed the outcome of God's intention towards his people. God, in his justice, was saying, they deserve my wrath. And God, in his mercy, said, I'm going to extend mercy towards them anyway. And in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, the prayer of Moses was part of that plan. And his prayer changed things. If you want more information about that, read the book of Exodus, beginning to end. 
It's a shocking, riveting story of how God rescues his people. It's full of grace. It's full of mercy. It's full of judgment. It's full of hope. It points to Jesus. It's a good book. But Moses is just one example. And I want to mention others more briefly. But think about for a moment Esther. Do you guys know the story of Queen Esther? She's a Jew living in Babylon. And during her time... The enemies of God's people wanted to try to wipe them out. And so there's an evil decree that there's going to be a day where it's legal to kill all Jews. And Esther is in a position of power, and yet it's not a position of absolute power. She's vulnerable and in danger of going before the king, because if you go before the king without an invitation and he doesn't want to see you, you get executed. So what does Esther do? Esther asks the people to fast, to go without food. And they they ask the people to, to pray one specific thing. Dear God, please give Esther an audience with the king. Now think about those two statements. Prayer changes you and prayer changes things. Okay, so if prayer changes you, think about it for a minute. Like, like, dear God, please give Esther an audience with the king. And then the longer you pray it, maybe God says, you know what? Esther doesn't really need an audience. And you go, oh, okay, God. Does that do the people of God any good at all? No. The prayer only does anyone any good if God in his wisdom and mercy says, I'm going to change the things around you, and I'm going to lead the heart of the king to welcome Esther so that she's able to intercede on behalf of the people. See, biblically in Esther, prayer changes things. It makes a real difference in history that Esther is granted an audience and able to intercede for the people of God. Think of Daniel. Daniel, again, different, different king, slightly different time. It's not super different, but different king, there's real danger where the king says, you know what, all of my wise men and all of my advisors have failed me. It's going to kill them all. Daniel and his friends pray. They pray and they ask for wisdom and insight. And Daniel is given an explanation for the king's dream. The prayer didn't change Daniel and his friends. They didn't say, well, if we die, we die. They say that later in the book. They do have that attitude of trust. They do have that attitude of faith. But in this instance, the prayer is followed by a vision for Daniel so that he knows what the king's dream was and what it meant. Prayer didn't just change the people praying. God responded to it with revelation. And it saved the lives of Daniel and his friends and of all of the king's advisors because God answered that prayer. There's Moses, there's Esther, there's Daniel, there's Elijah. And I want to give you a New Testament reference for this because Elijah is talked about in the New Testament. The story's told in the Old Testament. You can read about it there. Uh, There's conflict between a king who is wicked, who's not following God, and Elijah, a prophet, 
that wants to be faithful to all the teachings of God, and he's calling the people who are tempted to worship false gods, he's calling them to a kind of repentance. But we remember the moment, like the showdown. Some of you remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, and now there's this big showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. That was the end of an over three-year conflict during which Elijah prayed, and God shut up the heavens so it didn't rain. Now, that might sound weird, but here's what's happening there. God had promised to bless his people in the land as they were faithful followers of him. So part of being a faithful follower of Yahweh, part of being a faithful follower of God, is you're going to trust him to provide rain. And you're going to trust him and follow all of his commandments that include feasting in Jerusalem, that include offering sacrifices, not as a terrible obligation, but as an invitation to joy and blessing. And yet the people of God struggled to do that. If something bad happened, their immediate temptation was to say, man, you know, the Canaanites used to worship these local deities, and and, and maybe those deities are angry with us because we're not doing what we should. And so their temptation towards idolatry was constant. Every time something bad happened, they'd be like, oh, man, maybe we've made a local God angry. And so to us, we're like, you guys are losing your minds. How could you do this? But to them, they're trying to make sure that they have rain so that they can eat. And in this conflict, I want to give you a New Testament verse. Whether you turn there on your phone or whether you go there in a paper Bible, I want to encourage you to see this. This is in the book of James, chapter 5. James, chapter 5. I'm just going to read verse 17. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So don't make him some super spiritual giant that you can't be like. He's also a man who is a sinner. Elijah is a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So James is saying, prayer changes things. This man with a nature like yours and with a nature like mine asked God, God, in this conflict between good and evil, between faithful worship and idolatry, show that you are the one who has power over the heavens and I need you to withhold rain as long as people are calling on Baal to bless their crops. Let them know that Baal has no power. And God withheld rain so that people would understand that Baal was powerless to provide them with anything. And the scripture says, and he prayed again, and God answered his prayer in rain. Think again of our two statements. Prayer changes you, the prayer, or prayer changes things. For Elijah, the answer is clear. Prayer changes things. He, the prayer, doesn't change and go, oh man, Abraham... Wicked King Ahab isn't that bad. That's not what happens. What happens is God answers with his request and says, okay, it's not going to rain. And it doesn't. Now, friends, James also gives us really helpful insight into prayer. So if you did turn there, I want to point you to one other verse about prayer before we go back to 1 Timothy. Because James clearly encourages us to pray that things change. 
But then he helps us understand why sometimes they don't. And chapter 4 gives us just a couple of verses, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want to point you, because the first question then becomes, okay, pastor, you're saying prayer changes things. I've prayed for this for years and nothing. And it's led to discouragement, and it's led to a feeling like maybe God doesn't care, or maybe that he's not even there. And so I want to say very carefully, Prayer changes things, but sometimes God says no, and James describes why God might say no, and I want to be careful here because sometimes God says no, even when you're faithful and you're asking for a good and a right thing, and I think for some of those things, we're not going to understand why until we see Jesus face to face, but an answer of no or an answer of wait is an invitation to examine your heart, and James says this. I'm in the second half of James chapter 4, verse 2, and James says this, you do not have because you do not ask. In other words, you're not praying like you should, so you're not receiving the blessings of God because you're not even asking God for these blessings. And then he says, you ask, okay, so sometimes you do pray, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In this chapter, He then encourages the church to mourn and to weep and to seek the Lord. In verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, friends, I think sometimes we as a church and maybe broadly as an American church and maybe as a global church, we do not have because we do not ask. And if we were to do a kind of assessment of our weekly activities as a church and said, Are we a praying church? Paul says very clearly, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. My question for myself, and and I don't mean to, to say anything bad about anybody, but my question is, do we do this? If we were to say, first of all, what do we do as First Baptist Church of Holly? Would prayer really be The first of all. And then think about the different types of prayer that he's commanding here, okay? He says, so supplications, I think we're pretty good with those. That means asking for things that you need, and they're not unspiritual. We're commanded, ask for what you need. God loves to give you good things. So so we probably do that most of all. Uh, But then prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings, friends, I have a hard time making sure that I'm thankful in prayer, especially at a heart level. Like, I can say the words, but it's so hard to be happy and joyful before God when so many things are hard and discouraging and difficult. But Paul doesn't say, ask God for what you need. He commands prayers and intercessions, which includes worship of the Father, and it includes thankfulness for what he's already done. Friends, it includes confession of sin. Uh, I didn't read earlier in James chapter 5, James is specifically commanding the church, confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. And that's when he says the effective and faithful prayer of a righteous man is powerful. It avails a lot. And that's when he gives the illustration of Elijah. So in, in the book of James, James is commanding a kind of corporate confession so that the sins of the church are forgiven and healed and blessed. And he's saying, look, church, your prayers are powerful. Let's be faithful in praying together. And so this section of 1 Timothy 
gives us the first priority of the corporate prayer of God's people. That we would be dedicated in praying for all people. Specifically, he mentions a kind of praying for peace. And in a moment, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. In a moment, he's going to say, men, lift holy hands in prayer. So we know he's talking about group prayer and not just private prayer because it's in the plural and he's commanding that this be done as the people gather. At 1 Corinthians, Paul makes it clear women are to pray publicly in the gathered church service. So many people feel bashful and many people feel like, you know, Jesus did command us to be careful about public prayer, and he did. But he also commanded us to pray when we gather together audibly so that we can hear each other pray, so that we can say, amen, let it be, let it be. And so friends, the command of praying is a command to be praying in groups together. And we're to pray for all people, for believers who are part of the church, that they would live godly lives, and for non-believers that they would know Jesus and know the love of God for them. I read Psalm 122 for scripture reading this morning because it shows an Old Testament version of the same prayer. God, let us worship you the way that you intended. Make it easy for us to go and worship together. Let our joy be full as we gather together and worship. And it's good to pray for the peace of God's people. In fact, you see commanded throughout the Old Testament, pray for the king. Pray for the people of God. But one of the most stunning things, I think, in the Old Testament, there's a verse in Jeremiah chapter 29. Okay, the people of God in Jeremiah are very broken. And the people of God in Jeremiah are experiencing the judgment of God. And it's a painful and it's a frightful time. And Jeremiah 29.7 says this, not about Jerusalem, but about Babylon. Jeremiah says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. That's Babylon. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now friends, that verse would really help believers in a New Testament era where they are under the thumb of an evil empire that wants to snuff them out. And they are to pray for its welfare because its welfare is their welfare. Pray for peaceful resolution of violent conflict around the world. Pray for the provision of the needs of the poor. Pray for just laws and honest judges. Pray for your officials, whether they're national or local. Pray that the people of God would have all that they need so that they could worship God in an unhindered way. Because the peace of God's people contributes in part to the witness of God's people. Now I want to pause for a second because many of you have heard me say things like, we witness for God loudly when we suffer. But the good news of the New Testament is you never have to pray for suffering. You don't have to say, like, God, let me suffer. Like, you don't do that. That's backwards. And maybe you get the impression that I feel like if you're really spiritual, that's what you ask for. No, 
You, you actually ask for the opposite. Lord, bless us. Let us experience your goodness. And if in his wisdom God allows suffering to enter into your life, he will sustain you and strengthen you through it. But you don't have to pray for that. Instead, you pray for the peace of God's people so that it's easy to witness to other people about Jesus. Yes, some of the most powerful times for witness in your life are going to be like Daryl Burgett from a hospital bed. That's true. And in God's timing, that will happen for many of us, if not most of us. But what we pray for is actually peace for the purpose of witness. So my first point this morning was praying for peace. We read verses 1 and 2, so that we could lead a peaceful and quiet life in godly and dignified in every way. That's the end of verse 2. Look with me at verses 3 and 4, and I want to talk for a moment about praying for public witness. I'm going to say that again, praying for public witness. Verse 3 and 4 says this, this is good. What, what is this? He's talking about the, the peaceful life that you've been praying for and the prayer that leads to it. Verse 3, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So we are praying for public witness. The reason God likes to answer and bless these prayers is because his desire is not for people to suffer. It's not. God allows it and God uses it, but his desire is for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. As you try to witness to different people, sometimes a life crisis leads people to ask big questions and to seek to know what's true about Jesus. But often when people are in crisis, it's very hard for them to think and to know what's true. I read an article once about people who experienced domestic violence in the home. And they said it triggers like a fight or flight response in them that physiologically changes their brain chemistry. So you go to school and you try to learn math and you can't do it because it's like you just ran away from a grizzly bear. It makes it hard to know what's true. And if that's true of math, it's even more true about God. Because if you're in pain, you start to wonder, does God love me? Is, is God real? Does he even care? And so one of the reasons we pray for peace is so that people are able to come to a knowledge of what's true. Yes, God can overcome that and open blind eyes and, and save hearts in any environment, but we don't pray for wild, crazy environments. We pray for people to be open to listen to the gospel in a peaceful environment. God bless us. And, and I want to pause right now at this point in the sermon and, and ask, friends, this has been one of the craziest years in all of history. Not only... With, with a pandemic that's still raging. And in fact, the paper said, uh, this is something that, you know, I don't know if the, the, the news should report because it seems like we've had so much bad news lately, but more people have died in 2021 from the coronavirus than they have in 2020. Uh, we're experiencing a lot of blessing here because so many people have been vaccinated and that's a piece of why the spread is slowing. But that's not true in the third world. And many people are suffering in places like India. 
And the death toll in 2021 is actually higher than it was in 2020. And not only is there this pestilence, this plague, but we've also had violence not only in America, but all around the world. Israel and the Palestinians have had violence this year like they haven't had in a few years. We've had riots of different types from different parts of the political spectrum all across the country over the past 18 months. And friends, I wonder if it's in part that we have not peace because we have not asked for peace. We haven't sought the peace of God that the heart of God wants to bless us with, but we're not on our knees humbled before him yet. And I want to say this gently because it's as true of me as it is of maybe anybody else. Uh, as stuff got bad in the beginning of 2020, our pastors groups, man, like we would never want to pray for this, but maybe this is what's going to take to lead the church into a humbled, God-seeking, prayerful culture that's going to see revival like we've prayed for for our whole lives. Maybe this is it. And then as everything raged on, it seemed like people got angry and frustrated. Rather than being humbled on their knees, they marched to the ballot box and, and, and disagreed there about what should happen. Nobody thinks that we live in a peaceful country right now. Now, thank God that it's not horribly violent, but I wonder, is it possible that we have not because we ask not and we're not seeking the peace of God on us the way that we should. And I say this not to say, shame on us. You're like, I don't want to point a finger. I want to invite us to pray. I want to say, let's get on our knees. It's not too late. The mercy of God is always available. Let's again dedicate ourselves to being a prayer for people. Let's change the culture of our church so that we are devoted to prayer. So that when Paul says, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. We go, yes, and that is the first priority of our church, number one. Because I'm not sure that it is right now. And I'm not saying that's anybody else's fault. I'm responsible for leading and providing direction. That's, that's my fault, right? But it needs to change. We can't just say, our priority is to sit gathered in worship and to sing and to listen to prayers. We have to pour out our own prayers. We as the people of God need to pray together in a united way. Pray for the big things. Pray for the little things. But pray because our witness depends on it. Now there are so many things in the verses that I just read that, that I'm not going to major on. But one of the things that I want to point out to you is that we have the blessing of having really, truly good news. So many people live with the attitude that God is kind of angry and judgmental, that he doesn't like certain types of people, and that's a lie. It's not true. We have a God that desires that all people would be saved and would come to a knowledge of the truth. That's his heart. If you think about the best friend that you have, whether it's a spouse or a friend, you love introducing people to them, right? Be because you know that they're a good person and that anyone who likes good people is going to like your best friend. Your greatest friend is God. And his heart is that all people would be saved. And you can unashamedly tell people, I'm a worshiper of God. You know, if you knew him, you'd love him. I hope that you know him. 
The good news of our witness is the heart of God is full of mercy. And yet one of the hard things of this passage is the truth that knowledge of that truth is absolutely essential. If you don't know that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, you cannot be saved. And so God has a heart for all people to come to knowledge of the truth. And part of why we pray for peace is so that we are able to spread that truth far and wide without any hindrance. Pray that the truth of God would save God's people and the lost. And finally, not only do we pray for peace, and not only do we pray for public witness, but we worship the person of peace. So look with me at verses 5 through 7. This is where these prayer requests lead to the heart of God and to the message of the gospel. Verse 5 says this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time Paul says, for this, I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Okay, so the message is exclusive. You need the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ to be saved. The goodness of God appoints messengers to go spread that message So Paul says, my job is to tell people about the mercy of God that he has openly made available to all who hear. Repent. Acknowledge your sinfulness before God. Be baptized, showing that you died with Christ and are raised with Christ and given new life. This is the gospel, that God loves you so much. He sent his son to die for you. And Jesus Christ satisfied all of the requirements of the law and paid every debt of sin. And so God raised him to life in power. And that life is available to all who call on the name of the Lord. And God didn't just do that and keep it a secret. God wants it publicly announced everywhere. There is only one God. There is only one way of salvation. The the, the lie that all roads lead to Rome does not apply to religion. Some people have said there are many paths up the mountain, but all of them lead to the top. It's not true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And yet that Jesus said, "I, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might live. He came not as a prophet condemning people, but he came as a ransom, as a sacrifice given freely and willingly for our sin. That's why Paul preaches, because God is good and Jesus is the only way and no one will be saved without knowledge of Jesus and so he preaches to spread that knowledge far and wide and the goal is global praise. Now, it's easy to miss this because we have a little bit of a different culture. But for Paul, someone who was raised a Jew, there are two types of people in the world. There are Jews and there are non-Jews. 
And it's a radical, crazy thing that his main job is to spread the message of Jesus to non-Jews. His goal is global worship. He deliberately goes to places people have never heard about Jesus so that he can tell them, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus rose from the dead. There is forgiveness for all of your sins no matter what you've done. So repent, believe, be baptized, be saved. Know the God who made you. Know what is really true. And I believe that if we want to see the Lord work and save people in Holly and in Michigan and in the United States, if we want to see revival that spreads around the globe, we must be devoted to prayer, not just as a portion of our service, but as a main part of our culture of who we are, not just privately, although I pray that every one of our members and attenders has a a vibrant, lively, private prayer life. That's essential. We see that throughout the whole Bible, that many people deliberately spend time alone with the Father. Jesus does that. And yet, when Paul is giving instructions for the household of God, the gathered church, he says, our first priority should be corporate prayer where not just the pastor prays, but he's going to say next week, I desire men to lift hands in in, in holy prayer. And elsewhere throughout the New Testament, again, we see women praying publicly. It can't just be a couple people in the front praying on behalf of the service, although that's biblical. There's nothing wrong with that. If that's all we do, we can't say that our culture is a church that has prayer as a first priority. So what do we do? Friends, I would say that after five years of being here, it's true that we don't pray together very much. And I understand, and I want to be gentle here. I've heard many people say to me, Pastor, I'm just not comfortable praying in front of people. And that's, that's sort of okay. I say sort of okay because you can pray silently in a group. You don't have to pray out loud. Where it might not be okay, and, and I want to be gentle here, where it might not be okay is if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart and you begin to get a burden that you need to pray out loud. And, and if you say, God, I can't do that, and you tell him no, that's a problem. So as your pastor, I'm not going to say, you must pray out loud. Maybe you'll be one of those people that you silently pray as the group prays. But I would also say, if the Holy Spirit lays something on your heart, don't tell God no. Okay, I'm not going to tell you, you must pray out loud. But if God moves you, follow the leading of the Spirit in your life and be willing to pray audibly, even if it's uncomfortable. Even if you stumble and stutter a little bit, you know what? The power of prayer is not in the smoothness of your speech. It's not. The power of prayer is in the grace of God that uses us to accomplish incredible things in history. And so, friends, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to invite you to. Something that I just want to try. Maybe we'll try it for the summer and it won't work, and so we'll try something else at the end of summer. But here's what I'd like to try. I want to propose to you a a prayer meeting before this service every Sunday at 9.30. Now, some of you have obligations on Sunday mornings, and and maybe you're in the band, maybe you're going to be teaching, and and so maybe you can't stay for 30 minutes, but you could stay for 15. You could pop in for a minute. Maybe that's going to exclude you, and we'll find something else for you. But I want to invite the whole church 
to gather together. You're coming on Sunday anyway. Come just a little bit earlier. We'll pray for 30 minutes. And then you'll have plenty of time to greet other people and to fellowship in person. And so I want to encourage you, come at 9.30. Here's where I'd like to do it. Let's be down by door one in the very first Sunday school room that's across from the office. And let's pray together. Let's pray for all people. Not just for kings and those in authority, but but let's pray for presidents, for governors and legislators and judges and mayors and managers and council members and superintendents and principals and teachers. Let's pray for our police and fire chiefs. Good night. They have never had a more difficult job. Let's pray for our neighbors and our families. Let's pray for racial reconciliation. And more than anything, let's pray for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That people who are lost and need a Savior would come to know him. Let's pray that prayer would move from a lower priority to being the first priority in our church. And some of you are like, oh man, I've been in terrible prayer meetings and they're all awful. You know what? I'm going to be real honest. A lot of prayer meetings are kind of awful because they can be poorly planned. And so what I want to propose is something that's a little bit more structured, something that will be a little bit easier to pray during. So we might have a particular focus that says, okay, this week, We're going to pray for a couple of minutes for our church council and for our Sunday school teachers. And now we're going to pray for a couple of minutes for our local schools. If you know somebody who works at Holly L., let's pray for them by name. Let's pray for some of the the difficult decisions that people in authority have to make. And, And so we'll have specific focuses. We're not going to have long, awkward silences. We're going to keep it moving. And you know what? I'll be honest. As we start something new and different, it might be terrible. You might come and feel like, man, that was worse than any other prayer meeting I've ever been in. And maybe it will be. But an amazing prayer meeting is not something that we should insist on before we obey the word of God. You know, when I learned how to ride a bike, I fell down a lot. I wasn't a natural at it. You know what? I love riding a bike today. It's something that I learned and I improved on. And prayer can be just like that. Maybe we're not going to have great corporate prayer meetings right away. Maybe we need some training wheels. And maybe we're going to fall over a couple of times. But let's agree with the word of God that we need to grow in this area as a church. Perhaps as we look around at the many things we need The word of God would say to us, you have not because you've asked not. And as we look around at a broken world that's suffering in many different areas, the word of God would say to us, you have not because you ask not. And so friends, let's begin to ask. Would you come at 9.30 next week and pray with us? My hope is that the room there will be too full and we'll have to go to a different room the following week. Let's be dedicated for 30 minutes in praying together in a way that's not just the pastor praying in front of the congregation, but that allows the voices of the congregation to pray. Because we we are all the body of Christ. We are all priests. We all have a voice before the Father because we have one high priest, Jesus Christ. And friends, the God who answered Moses 
and Esther and Daniel and Elijah, that same God will answer our prayers as well. Would you commit to praying with me both now and next Sunday? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, you have invited us to something so good and yet something so hard at the same time. So would you encourage us when it feels like we failed? Would you strengthen us when it seems like we're weak? Would you give us perseverance when we feel like we're tired? Would you help us to pray so that we can see you answer our prayers? Would you unite us so that we can pray together with one voice and see you answer again and again and again? Would you bless us with the kind of peace that shows the preciousness of the gospel? I pray this in Jesus' name.